0: Before we get on to the episode, we got to give a special shout out to Joshua Hounshell for not only being a regular listener and frequent commenter on the Southpaw Facebook page, but for also becoming our newest Patreon sponsor. You're the best ever. Thank you. And if you too want to be a legend like Joshua, you can find us on patreon.com slash Southpawpod. I'll include a link in the show notes.
1: This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is South Paul.
0: So today on the podcast we have rosie sexton hi rosie
2: hi sam how are you doing
0: good and with me i have my co-host paul
1: good afternoon or whatever time it is over there
2: it's it's evening it's uh quarter to seven
0: so let me kind of uh let the fans know a little bit about you so that we can save a little bit of time and then you can tell me if i missed anything but i think you have at least five degrees
2: I think it was five last last time I counted. There might be more. You might have forgotten about them. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's a story there. Anyway. <laughs>
0: so from what I know, you're a classically trained musician. You're a mathematician. You're a computer scientist. You hold ranks in several martial arts. And you're also a doctor of osteopathy. And for U.S. listeners, uh, European osteopathy is a bit different from osteopaths here. It's more like... Uh, I guess the closest thing we'd have is a doctor of physical therapy, but you guys probably get more training in manual therapy, more hands-on stuff.
2: Yes. So it's, uh, I mean, it's probably a combination of several things. There's there's no uh, precise equivalent, I think for you guys. Um, But uh, a lot of what I do is based around physical therapy and treatment of sports injuries, that sort of thing.
0: So furthermore, you're also a pioneer of women's MMA, the first British woman to fight in the UFC. Uh, you've basically fought every big name in women's MMA of your era, and some of them on their way up. You're a long-distance runner, you sail, you mountaineer, and you, you do too many things for me to mention here. But what all this tells me is that you're a highly curious person. And it also says a lot about your character, because you have to consistently maintain a certain attitude, I think to learn so many things, right? Because for me, I find that curiosity and attitude is more important than capacity when people are multidisciplined. Like when I meet somebody who knows a lot of stuff, I find that it says more about their psychology or their curiosity about the world than anything else.
2: Yes, I, I, th- I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I don't think I'm particularly talented at any one thing. I heard a quote recently, we put it really well. It, I'm naive enough to say yes and then stubborn enough to follow through on it. And I think that that applies to all manner of things. I think I I have a way of saying yes to things. So, do you want to take this fight? Do you want to do this? Do you want to? uh, And I'll I'll agree to it. And I'll go, yeah, that sounds like a fantastic idea. And then a little bit later, it kind of sinks in what I've just agreed to. And I go, okay. but that's the other bit of my personality where I think I once I've said yes to something, I want to follow follow through on it, so I want to stick with it, and I think that's where the stubbornness comes in. And uh, I think the net result of those two things means that I end up doing a lot of stuff. Um, well, like I said, I started out as sort of a very nerdy kid when I was when I was young. I was, uh, sort of had my head buried in a in a book a lot of the time. Um, quite introverted, you know, quite anxious. Um, and then I sort of found my way into traditional martial arts as a teenager. And I did that for a number of years before eventually realising that I'd never been in anything resembling a real fight. And I didn't know whether, you know, w- what I would do if I if I ended up in one. Um, and that's about the time I first heard about mixed martial arts. So, uh, so that's where I got involved in that. Um, and originally, I was just going to have a couple of fights to see how I got on. And to, to, basically to prove to myself that I could do it, and then somewhere along the way I got hooked on the hooked on the sport, and I wanted to see how good I could get at it. Uh, and I mean, at the time when, when I started, it was it was still a very small sport. You know, there there weren't many of us doing it, and it, it felt like oh this is something I'm doing for me, and then. As I was competing, I think the sport sort of grew up around me. So it was kind of like surfing this crest of a wave, and before I knew it, suddenly it's it's all become quite popular, and I'm fighting on a a, a much in a much higher profile setting in a much more public kind of than I I'd, I'd ever bargained for. I think um, so. That was that was a hell of a journey, really. Um, and then along the way, when I was doing that, that's where I got interested in sports injuries. Obviously, you tend to see a lot of them around combat sports, and I started doing a lot of reading up on that. There was, I found it really hard to find sports injury professionals who really understood mixed martial arts, especially with it being such a young sport at the time. So that's when I started thinking, well, actually, I, I want to learn more about this for, for myself. I want to be able to do this properly. So that's when I went back to university. Decided I was going to train as an osteopath, so that's sort of all the. the in a nutshell, that's the story of how I ended up where I am now, um, and uh, I've done a few other bits and pieces along the way. I think the the latest thing that I've started getting involved in. So I've actually started getting involved in some local politics as well, so uh, that might make for an interesting uh, bit of a discussion later. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's me in a nutshell.
0: On top of all this, do you have kids also?
2: yes i do um i have i didn't just forget about it. <laughs> um no i've got i've got a thirteen year old son and an eleven year old stepdaughter my, my son's at an age at the moment where mums aren't cool and even if you fought in the ufc you're still not cool um so you know i kind of thought what more could i do you know um but uh, but yeah so he's he, most of the time he, he prefers hanging out with his friends at the moment so i just have to remember to nag him about homework and things like that
0: so rather than like a let's say an uh, official retirement? Was it more like your interest changed? You were fighting and then you were like, oh, sports injuries, because I'm kind of injured. Let's take this journey there. Is that kind of how it happened? It wasn't like necessarily a a real, let's say retirement. It was more of an evolution, would you say?
2: Not quite. I mean, I, I started on the sports injury journey while I was still fighting. Okay. So I was studying to be an osteopath at the same time as I was I was fighting professionally which like i said made for a, a really interesting time of things um <laughs> because I, re- I retired in 2014 and that was a conscious decision i think that was i got to a point where i realized that i'd done about as much as i wanted to and, you know, I'd, I'd fought all over the world. I fought a lot of the up-and-coming. and it was time for me to to move on. And I think it was there was a realization that there were other things that I wanted to do with my life. And at that level, it's very hard to combine anything else, in fact, with fighting, because training for fights. You know, when when you're sort of fighting people at that kind of level, it's it's a full-time job, and it's very very hard to to balance that with anything else. So. That's where I kind of decided to to take a step back, and I think also I was at a point where I picked up a few injuries. I knew that I wasn't competing at my best, and once once you know what your best looks like, it's very hard to settle for anything that's less than that. And so, so maybe it's time to move on. It's time to do something else.
0: Being so multidisciplined, did you also ever consider using all those things together to become an MMA coach?
2: I've considered coaching actually. It's, it's something that I still think about it now and then. I still think it's something I'd like to do. Again, I think it's simply a question of there only being so many hours in the day. And the, the direction I chose to go in was more with uh, my clinic and the osteopathy practice. I think it would have been, it would have been very hard to do both and certainly to do both at the level that I would have wanted to do them. So, I decided that I was going that's that's what I was going to focus on i know there's a, there's a lot of really great coaches out there at the moment doing doing great things with that. I think I sort of felt like my role was more getting injured fighters back on the mat.
1: circling a little back to your beginning in martial arts, you mentioned in a past interview that the music and the math just weren't quite hard enough as <laughs> maybe the reason you got into martial arts and hearing you now talk about how tough it is to half fights as a full-time career do you still feel that way or is it as you got deeper into mathematics and your current field now do you think well no they're all equally tough some are just more taxing on the body than others and some more so on the mind
2: yeah so uh, I think I think that that was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek Comment. I I I wasn't entirely serious. Um, so I mean, with all of these things, you can make them as hard as you want. You know, when when you're doing it at at the highest level or the highest level that you can do, they're all hard. Um, I think what I meant by that is that the. Maths always came reasonably naturally to me. I always felt like I picked it up quite quickly. It wasn't something I really had to work super hard at to to get a basic level of understanding. Martial arts, I think anything physical, it's not something that I took to really naturally. It's something that I had to work really hard to get good at. And it's something, physical conflict was something that terrified me growing up. I think that's, in a way, that's a big part of why I got, Interested in martial arts as a teenager um, because I had this idea that I wanted to learn how to defend myself. I suppose, again, the, the fantasy was well, if I just learn some techniques, I'll know that I can defend myself. I won't have to worry about being attacked or any of these things. And obviously, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize that, yeah, it's not quite as simple as that. But I think that was my motivation originally was because it was something, I mean, I suppose in a nutshell, it was because it was something that scared me. I think that's, that's what drew me to it. Speaking of things that
1: scare you, math always terrifies me and it's always ranked as people's most least favorite class. Why is that? And is it cliche that it's because how it's taught or could it be in our nature?
2: I think a lot does depend on how it's taught. I think that, that re- it really does make a difference. It's for me, maths was always about problem solving. And I, I was fortunate to have some incredibly good teachers very early on who sort of introduced me to it as it's it's about solving puzzles. And it doesn't matter if you, you get this puzzle, you don't immediately know how to go about it. You don't know. You don't look at it and get, immediately think of an answer. But by playing around with the ideas you know by getting a piece of paper out and you know sketching some diagrams and trying to trying to put the concepts together you can sort of gradually tease out a bit more of what's going on and eventually find the find the answer so for me that's sort of always what it's been about it's about trying to solve those puzzles and there might not be things that where the answer jumps out really quickly but to me that was never a problem because i was i think the people who who I remember learning from back when I was a kid they they got across the idea that it doesn't matter if you can't do it straight away and it doesn't that doesn't mean you're stupid or it doesn't mean that you know you're not good at it it just means you have to have to think a bit harder and you have to play around with it until things start to start to come together and I think that was what gave me love for it and I think doing maths at school a lot of it is quite boring. It's jumping through hoops, you know, it's learning the, doing the drills. I mean, it it would be like if you were learning to play football, but you only ever did drills, you know, or if you're learning Jiu Jitsu, but you only ever did drills, you never roll. It's hard to see the point of what you're doing. Sometimes if you spend three hours doing guard retrieval drills, but you've never rolled. So you don't know what they're for and you don't know why you're doing them. Then you start to go, well, this is pointless. And I think that's the problem with maths. I think a lot of people is presented as, right, here's a bunch of drills, go go away and do these. And people don't don't see how they all tie together and see how it how it fits. And I think that's the that's a real shame because you miss out on all the fun of it, like. Um, it's the same way with jiu-jitsu. the fun is in the rolling you know, you, you do all the drills and learn the techniques and things like that so that you can roll better and so that you can do better when you're, when you are sparring. But if you never roll, then it doesn't mean anything.
0: No, I completely agree with that. I also though have a pet theory of mine that your relationship with math is also kind of like a personality test. Like you could separate people by people who kind of, are natural at math or enjoy math, or maybe not even enjoy it, but something is compelling about math and the people who just want to run away from it. And that's what uh, I think Paul was meaning by it, like it's in our nature. Because, and you can tell me what you think about my idea, but I think the reason why you like math is the same reason why you ran towards something you were afraid of. Cause a big part of math, like all of like a lot of people are okay with math until they get to algebra and then it's like solving for X, right? Yeah. And it's like it's the great unknown. It's like this unknown thing. And you were scared of this unknown thing, like you've never been in a fight, and you ran towards it. You wanted to solve for X. You wanted to understand what that variable was, right? And a lot of people don't. They hate the unknown. They don't want to know. That scares the the shit out of them, right? I think that's one aspect of what I mean by the personality test. Yes. The other personality test that I think of is, and I'm gonna relate this to martial arts like you were, but I'm gonna relate this to something that Miyamoto Musashi said, um, which has been compiled in his book of five rings, which he never wrote a book, but his students compiled it. But the thing he said, I think was step-by-step, take the thousand mile road. I think that's the quote. And that's what math is. It's like, we focus so much on the prize, the end goal, right? But that's not actually math. Like when you do a long problem, you have to show your work. You have to show the math. Yes. So even if you get the result wrong, the, the answer wrong, if you did the math right, the process, the, the thousand mile road, yeah, right, then th- you got like 99% of it, right? Yes. And it's the only class that I could think of where you had to do the work. You had to do the math. Whereas other things, if you got to the conclusion or you wrote some kind of thing that, that said the conclusion, you know, yeah. then you got graded for it where this was the only class that was so process driven that even if you're a fantastic teacher it's just really hard to get people committed to step by step taking the thousand mile road yeah and I feel like if Musashi was a real person I feel like he would have been like a strict math teacher
2: yeah I I think there's something particularly unforgiving about math as as a subject in that isn't the case for just about anything else I think and that's You can't bullshit at (laughs) all. Um, There's absolutely no room for it. Um, When I was doing my PhD, I used to, uh, if I was working on a problem, quite often, you know, I'd be having a shower and I'd come up with this idea and it's like, oh, I've got it, I've got it, I've got the answer. And then you spend the next eight hours figuring out why that idea is wrong. (laughs) And I do this sort of day in, day out for weeks. Um, And uh, I think there's, there's something about that, the kind of, the discipline of taking the idea and assuming that your original idea is probably wrong and having to go through all the, all the detail of trying to, trying to figure out and trying to prove or disprove, you know, why, why this does or doesn't work um, rather than just being able to jump to a conclusion and go, Oh yeah, this must be true. This is obviously true. Um, And I think that's, that's something that we're not really trained to do by almost anything else in life is to, to prove ourselves wrong a lot of the time and to, to prove our intuitions wrong. And I think that's, uh, that's something that I've really taken away with me from, from the discipline of, of doing maths is the idea that you might have an idea, but that doesn't mean it's true.
1: The way you describe math is similar to the way I would think of training for a fight, and sparring where this is going to work this is going to work and you get in there like nope not even close.
2: Oh absolutely you know you, you see you see a new technique and every time you know you go oh that's brilliant that's going to totally change my game it's that's amazing and then you try it in sparring and you go ah.
1: spinning elbow of course <laughs> that's the missing key yeah. that was x
2: yeah yeah and and then and then it is and then you are back to the drawing board again um and again it's it's the difference between the the martial arts that train realistically if you like and the ones where you're you're doing things on a compliant opponent or a compliant partner um and there's never you never really have to test the them out and just to see whether they're actually going to work and i think that was it's that difference again it's that sort of need prove whether something works and also being open to the idea that it might not i think that's you know accepting the the possibility that okay this looks like a good idea but it it might be wrong um yeah i I think that that takes a certain mindset i think it's it's something that you've got to be open to but it's it's definitely something that you train that as well
0: stress testing yes basically we have to be used to stress testing and that's what i was like kind of implying early on what I said about attitude about lifelong learning mm. is the people who are able to learn a lot of things, they have a higher ability to like stress test or have other people stress test their ideas. And what it reminds me of, or I'm always reminded of that when I read your Facebook posts, where like you have five or more degrees, right? But you're always posting stuff about like, questioning people, like, how do you know, how do you know anything for sure? Like, that's not exactly what, like a word for word, what you posted, but that's the general theme. It's always kind of like, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Yes. And it, I once posted that, I think you need five degrees or more to realize there's a lot we don't know.
2: Yes. Well, this is it. It's, it's the, it's that tension between the, the Dunning-Kruger effect and the imposter syndrome, isn't it? It's uh, walk, walking that tightrope between the two. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's uh, I mean, Dunning Kruger is uh, it, it, it's it's fantastic because that's the the theory that says basically the less you know about something, the more you're likely to be overconfident in your ability to to do that or to to know that. Um, because if basically if you if you don't know enough, if you know very little, then you don't know enough to know that you don't know anything um i think that's that's really something that you see a lot all over the place these days is uh, people who they've got a little bit of information um but because they they don't know everything around it or you know the the whole field they'll be massively overconfident in their ability to apply that whereas people who know a lot more tend to be much more hesitant and much more um measured in their in their statements and their, their predictions and I think that's that's one of those things where the, the more you, you learn about this topic, the more you realize that you don't know and the more questions you, you have. As the saying goes, sir, uh, I'm no longer young enough to know everything.
0: <laughs> well, Dunning-Kruger is constantly being reinforced by society. Like you look at the most popular books, uh, most popular podcasts, or even things that float around on the internet, like memes. It's all kind of a lot of self-help stuff. Yes. So you got Dunning-Kruger. Yet self help is always telling you to fake it till you make it. Yeah. So it's almost like, yeah, you do know everything you need to know. So it's like reinforcing the Dunning Kruger, and it's like this mixed messaging where it's like, well, that is a bias, and it's playing to one of my, you know, weaknesses. But then everything else says I should do that. I should
2: play to my weaknesses and pretend I don't have them. Yeah, I think it's 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 a message that's easily corrupted. I think because it's it's become a case of, oh yeah, just just fake it. You know, just pretend. You know, everything. And I, th- I think it's become increasingly easy to do that in some ways with the with the Internet and with the, um, the prevalence of social media. And but at the same time, I, th- I think the, the message that I was given, um, I think the message that is more useful is that you can do anything or you can solve the problem. I mean, maybe, not anything, maybe, but uh, but most things. But you're going to have to work at it. And I think that's the bit that gets missed. It's the, but you're going to have to work at it. I think a lot of the time now become, people want it now. They don't want to do the, the work that gets from here to there.
0: I was talking about this with Paul, with a previous guest, we were talking about the differences between like Japanese animation and like Asian manga and cartoons versus American, where the Japanese Asian ones always have this long training process and they always have to like just work their way up until they get good. Yes. Whereas a lot of the American ones, not always, but there is a general theme where it's like, no, you had it in you all along. You just had to find it. You really didn't have to work for it. It was there you go.
2: You know? Yeah, yeah. This this drives me nuts. It's the, the 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 triumph of, of will over ability. You know, it's you just have to have the right attitude. Attitude doesn't make up for a lack of lack of ability you know I think you, you can have any attitude you like but the attitude you need to apply it in the preparation not when you get out there um so yeah no I think I think that's uh, that's absolutely bang on I think um that's that's something that I see a lot and it, it drives me nuts because it is definitely becoming more prevalent
0: I see this a lot with like white belt and blue belt competitors in jiu-jitsu where you're talking to them and they don't know enough. So they're like, oh, I lost that tournament. It must have been because I didn't go beast mode enough. It must have been because I wasn't fired up enough. I needed more like, you know, motivational tape listening before I competed. And I just want to tell them, no, it's because your techniques, they suck, man. (laughs) Like you need to work on them.
2: I get this all the time when I roll with white belts or I roll with, you know, somebody somebody can come to the gym and they're, Quite big and athletic, and they've not really done any jiu-jitsu, but they maybe they've played other sports. And I will roll with them, and I'll tap them a couple of times, just because you know I've done jiu-jitsu and they haven't, and it's you know that's that's how you'd expect it to go. But then there's that there's always that point when they go from using a lot of strength to using absolutely everything and going nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, they they start out by using quite a lot of strength, and then they sort of gradually ramp it up from there and i always want to tell them it's not that you are not using enough strength that wasn't the problem (laughs) that's not why things are going wrong for you here you know using more strength that's not going to fix the problem um but i think there's that idea well it's not working let's do the same but harder <laughs> and i mean again it's uh i mean that's something that everyone goes through right I, that's that's not me um being mean to white belts because we've we've all been there it's i think until you get to until you can really appreciate the technique and, and to do that you have to have been around for a little while to, to, to really be able to get a feel for it and be able to see what's going on it's um because it's not something that you can get across to somebody just by telling them that's one of those learning opportunity that you have to you have to have the experience to understand that for yourself um you kind of go that you can usually see it when they when the light finally dawns on somebody and they go oh oh right it's i've got to do it like this um and you know and uh, we we all have lots of those moments of revelation on the way through you know i've this it's uh i still get them you know when i go oh okay that's how it works um and i mean that's one of the things that i enjoy most about jujitsu and and yeah many of the other things that i do i think there's that's one of the the great joys of the learning process having those moments of revelation when you suddenly realize i've had this all wrong um and you know they happen in, in different ways and it's it's sort of more subtle ways as you um as you get better and now you know, when you've got more experience but but you still get them
0: i don't know if everybody gets them
2: <laughs> I, it's i mean it's hard to say because it's obviously it's hard for me to put myself inside somebody else's head that's true you've got to stick with something for long enough i think and that that's that's the the key thing because not everyone is built in a way where they want to stick with something through the bit where it gets hard and boring um
0: because there's the bjj bluebell turnover rate also
2: you've kind of got through the fun bit and that's where you, you the your progress starts to plateau and yeah no, and that that's when i think a lot of people start looking for for the next thing
1: yeah when you talk about oh this isn't working let's just apply more pressure more force It reminds me of overtraining in MMA, and you see it even at the highest level when some camps, they just run their fighters to the ground. And with your background, what do you think an ideal training schedule is for either the up and coming fighter, the seasoned veteran or at the championship level? Or is it about the same? They should stick to the same type of training environment.
2: So I think think you're absolutely right. I think almost every MMA fighter that I've ever spoken to overtrains at least some of the time. Um, I think it's a, it's a very difficult problem to solve because the problem is with MMA there is so much technical content to get through and technical work that... And, and there's a lot of technical work that's very hard to, to drill effectively without doing it at quite an intense level. So it's very hard to get enough drilling time in. And I think this is why people tend to... Uh, It's it's not a simple question. Like, I mean, for for sprinters, for example, the training plan is really simple. Yeah, it's I mean, not everyone can be a great sprinter, but you can write a training plan. And there's one thing that you have to be able to do and you have to be able to do it really well. Um, And I mean, I've I've got a sprinter that I work with. He'll probably tell me that I'm massively oversimplifying. Um, But compare that to something like mixed martial arts where you've got. I mean, you've got to be able to box. You've got to be able to wrestle. You've got to be able to fight on the ground. Uh, you've got to do the the strength work. You've got to do the game plan work, um, strategy, tactics. You've got to think about it from all those different angles. Um, so I think cramming that into a regular training week is a really difficult problem. And I think also different people respond differently to different training volumes and different intensities. It's quite an individual thing, and trying to um, Make the same one size fits all training plan apply to all of your fighters is always going to be a recipe for problems because you, I mean, depending on how old they are, you know, what weight class you're in, yeah, how long you've been training, I mean, even things like gender, um, health conditions, lo- lots and lots of other factors, those are going to um, affect how much that fighter. What their training capacity is, Um, and that training capacity will change over time as well. There's there's good evidence that we can modify training capacity, so um, you you can gradually build up how much you're doing, and and that would be much better tolerated than if you're going from a complete off season. So you're you're taking time off after a fight, you're not doing anything, and then suddenly you jump straight back into a fight camp, and you're trying to do two sessions a day. That never ends well. So I think you've got all those factors to work with. Um, and this is something that I've, I've been talking a lot about with, with a couple of my fighters at the moment, and we've been experimenting with some some different ideas when it comes to training and some different ways of uh, scheduling their training practices to to suit them. So we're going talk about doing alternating high days and low days, for example, so you know having your high intensity work on one day and then uh, a less intense day. to to recover um, and sort of when to fit in strength work. Um, Also, um, the difference between high intensity cardio and low intensity cardio, when you need to train one rather than the other, and why having some low intensity cardio work in your program is still important, despite the fact that everyone's all about the high intensity intervals these days. So there are lots and lots of things to think about there. And this is what I think a lot of the time. These things get massively oversimplified and we get this idea that more is better. If in doubt, well, we just train harder. You know, you've just got to out train your opponent. Um, And there comes a point when you can't do that because everyone out there is training hard. And. it, it's it's like a drug, you know. You don't say, well, if I, you know, if I take 500 milligrams of this drug, it's good. Well, in that case, taking a hundred times that, that must that must be better. And you know, we never do that because that's obviously wrong. Uh, but when it comes to training, there is that idea that if a little bit is good, then doing more must be better. And and that's that's just not the case.
0: Double the input doesn't always mean double the output. Sometimes double the input means you die
2: absolutely yes (laughs) there there is there is an optimal there is an optimal training amount and if if your program is the perfect program so it's perfectly designed for you so that's your optimal amount if you do more than that you're going to get worse results so when when your fighter goes off and does an extra couple of sets of hill sprints just because they felt they ought to do something they're going to be getting worse results than they would if they would stuck to the program, assuming you've got the perfect program. Which I mean, obviously, you know that's that's a whole other can of worms. But uh, but yeah, so it's getting through to people this idea that doing more can make you worse.
0: You mentioned a couple times already that there's only so much time in the day, and uh, you know, like for you yourself, you know, why aren't you doing more things in a day, and why you couldn't get into MMA coaching, right? And it seems like that's a big issue in MMA training as well, because there's so many different martial arts and things you got to consider in your training schedule. So I wonder, is there even room for intense like boot camp style strength training? Or should it be more about corrective
2: exercises and things to kind of like balance you out? I think it, it depends on the fighting. is one of these where I, 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 I mean, the answer to most of these questions about training is, is always it depends, right? um so it's i think there is definitely a place for maximum strength work there is definitely a place for getting under a bar and lifting some heavy weights i don't think you should be doing it four times a week you know if you're training like a bodybuilder obviously you're doing something wrong there um i think there's uh, because maximum strength is your is also your foundation for power development and speed development so when you look at the sort of the physiology of sports training i think these are important things but the question is then how do you do that in a way that doesn't interfere with the other training your technical training and also it's about prioritizing so for one fighter cuz you can never do you you can't maximize all of these things all at the same time you have to you have to pick and choose So you have to say well what's most important at the moment so if you've got a fighter who in absolute terms he lacks strength so he's you know, he's not as strong as the, the, the fighters in his weight class. There may be a very good case for spending a bit more time doing some maximum strength work. Um, whereas if you've got another fighter who's he's quite strong already, you know, he's outstrengthening a lot of the guys he's coming up against. But he's got some technical deficits. Then obviously you'd program maybe a bit less strength work. You might still keep a little bit in but at the same time making sure that he's covering those other areas. So I think you've really got to look at the individual when it comes to that and say, well, what's going to be right for this this particular fighter? But again, and it's it's realizing, well, how much do I need to do to get those strength gains? And to I mean it may be that you want to do your strength development work in between fights. So you're doing that off season if you like, and then during fight camp, it's more maintenance phase. So that's, I mean, that's the way that some, some fighters will uh, will want to do that. Um, and I think nowadays, now um, MMA has got bigger and there's more of the sports science coming into it. There, there are more good strength coaches who are looking at that sort of problem and, and how to work around that. Um, I mean, obviously, I think the, the corrective exercise can be really important as well. Um, I don't I don't like to draw a firm line between the two. I don't think, you know, you're either doing corrective exercise or you're doing max strength work. I think um, in some respects, it's a spectrum. You know, you want to you're developing good movement patterns, but then you're loading those movement patterns. And I think you need to um, we do need to load those movement patterns. You can't just um, get people doing. If you're only doing body weight work, there's a limit to how strong you can get doing that and i think that's going that will eventually limit your athletic potential um so compared to somebody who's uh, maybe using a, a more scientific approach if you like so i think there's a place for all of these things but it, it's uh, the art is always in looking at how what we know from the science applies to the individual and saying well what's right for that particular fighter in front of me
0: The reason why I asked that question and I'm kind of, you know, I understand it's an art, but I guess I'm kind of implying maybe one is more important than the other, just because now that we know more, it's not just about overtraining, messing up performance. You could have a fighter who has like three great performances because they recover correctly and whatever. But then in the long run, even though they've been performing okay, their training load was such that. Long-term, it was affecting their hormones, let's say, right? I think a lot of the reason why the USADA like drug testing and and testosterone problem has become such a problem is because of the way people train. They're finding that long-term, this overtraining or too much load, sometimes which gives them better performances, but in the long run, diminishes their testosterone levels.
2: I think that's that's one factor. I mean, that's, it's one of... A number of different factors, I think, certainly when we start getting into the whole question of uh, you know, why athletes use performance enhancing drugs, there's a, there's, a, I mean, there's a bunch of different things going on. There. I think the uh, I mean, the, the most obvious answer is because they're performance enhancing um, and it's I mean, you've, you've got a prisoner's dilemma situation with uh, with performance enhancing drugs in in the presence of it um, now you're bringing up game theory yeah um,
0: <laughs> you want to explain that to people prisoners dilemma
2: okay so um, in in game theory a prisoner's dilemma is a situation where you're coming up against somebody else there might be a partner there might be a competitor somebody that you're in this game with and you have a choice. You can either choose to cooperate or you can choose to stab the other guy in the back. Now, if you both choose to cooperate, then you'll both get a payoff, which is um, you'll do you'll do reasonably well. And now if the other person chooses to cooperate, but you stab him in the back, then you'll do really well and they'll do terribly. And the other way around, you know, if you choose to cooperate and they stab you in the back, they'll do really well. You'll do terribly. If you both choose to stab each other in the back, then you'll both just do badly. You've, you've got this you've got this payoff matrix, as they, as they call it. Um, so basically, the, the uh, overall, the, the best outcome for both people together is if you both um, you both cooperate. The next worst outcome is if you you both defect, so you you both stab each other in the back, um, and obviously the absolute worst outcome for you is if you choose to cooperate and your partner stabs you in the back. So the way I link that to use of performance enhancing drugs, if neither of you use performance enhancing drugs, then that's probably the best overall outcome for health wise, um, because I mean you don't have to worry about side effects, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about getting caught you know, so if, if neither of you do it, that's great. Now, if my opponent uses drugs, and I don't, um, obviously, he's going to get a much better result, or at least the chance of a much better result, and things are going to be worse for me. And obviously, in mixed martial arts, that involves, you're likely to get beat up more, um, which is which is never a good thing. Um, and then the worst case, but better for me than cooperating when my opponent doesn't, is if we both end up using drugs and we're both in basically the same position that we're in before because neither of us have a competitive advantage and we've got all the downsides of you know having to having to do all that you know the expense the side effects the potential for getting caught um so you don't have a competitive advantage but you end up in that situation because neither of you can guarantee that the other person won't so that's a slightly long-winded explanation (laughs) but you, you see this um this idea of the prisoner's dilemma, fundamentally in in game theory, this is one of the big problems with lots of things in the world at the moment. Is the prisoner's dilemma, and the the difficulty of of solving that because you have a situation where both people's best outcome, or I I know that whatever my my opponent does, whatever my the other person does, I will do best if I stab him in the back, at least in the short term for this one instance. Um, and he knows the same, but if we both do that, then we'll both do worse than we would if we both cooperated. I mean, it can look a little bit paradoxical when you first look at it, um, but then you start seeing it all over the place. And I mean, weight cutting is another one of these, a really good example of a prisoner's dilemma. Um, because you end up with a situation where every fighter would be better off if nobody cut weight. Nobody likes cutting weight. So if if there was a way that we could eliminate it altogether, everyone would do better. But the problem is you only need one person to start doing it or a couple, few people to start doing it. And all of a sudden, everyone else then has to do it to keep up. Race to the bottom. Exactly. I mean, that's that's essentially the same, same thing that we're talking about. So you end up with the same thing where nobody's getting competitive advantage because everyone's doing it. And everyone has to go through the pain and inconvenience and danger of cutting weight. But everyone's doing it because they don't want to be the one person who's going to be left behind by not doing it
0: the scariest example of uh the prisoner's dilemma was like the nuclear arms race
2: yes exactly that and this idea that well we'd all be better off if nobody had these things but we don't want to be the one person who doesn't
0: and the greatest minds couldn't figure out a way to stop it right
2: yeah uh, there's there's a lot that's been written about you know that period and you know the, the game theory of it and th- this is um where a lot of this game theory came out of uh, I mean, you can you can segue neatly here, actually, into economics as well. You say that, I mean, the, the biggest problem with free markets is that they have no solution for, the, for Prisoner's Dilemma. Or, I mean, the multiplayer version of Prisoner's Dilemma is called the tragedy of the commons. There's a story that goes behind it. But basically, it's a situation where if everyone cooperates, then you get a much better outcome. And everyone individually would do better off if they could freeload on everyone else so, so they defect but everyone else cooperates but the problem is that ends up in a situation where everyone ends up defecting so everyone ends up with a worse outcome i mean you see this with i mean with environmental problems with um with taxes one of the biggest arguments for having some form of regulation a lot of the time is in order to solve this problem of tragedy of the commons
0: yeah because the free market has no way to differentiate fraud From what's real right if the market keeps buying like what they call vapor right like there's nothing there but you keep buying it just because they do good advertising or they keep tricking you Mm -hmm. whether it's the software that doesn't exist which we saw a lot if you've ever paid attention to what happened in the cryptocurrency market Uh, or you look at or you look at fire fraud where he threw a festival that didn't exist right like the free market doesn't know it's so long as people are buying it then it deserves to exist Fraud is something that is only delineated under the eyes of the law. So that's where you need, like, uh, you know, a government, or if this is sports, right, you need a commission to come in to make things fair.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's where sort of regu- regulation, or at least that's uh, where good regulation, I think, comes into its own. Is uh, is for dealing with those those instances. Um, is the whole idea of I mean, how did cooperation evolve? in the first place because I mean obviously you know if, if you're in a group of people who or a group of animals for example who are cooperative then you're going to maximize your own individual outcomes if you can freeload on them so that they're, they're you know help, they're helping you out and cooperating um, but you're not giving back so there's that whole question of well how did cooperation evolve how do we solve the freeloader problem and all of those things which I think again, ties in with a lot of uh, modern politics and economics.
0: Well, because it's like psychology that runs all of this is uniform across everything from MMA, politics, economics, right? Yeah. Into even individual decisions.
2: Absolutely. No, I think uh, there, there are a lot of parallels there.
0: Going back to training, do you think you should train all body parts equally or should there be more emphasis on certain body parts for MMA fighters or grapplers?
2: Yeah, there's an interesting question. So I don't think equally necessarily. I think obviously every athlete is going to be specialised towards what that athlete does. Um, you don't see any tennis players playing half their matches with their left hand or their, their non-dominant hand, I should say, um, You know, in order just to keep things balanced. It doesn't happen. Um, and in the same way, I think... You would be hard pressed to argue a performance advantage for keeping everything in perfect balance to the point that, you know, you're um, you're not focusing on on what you the adaptions you need specifically for that sport. However, I think there is an argument for doing some training specifically in order to to balance out um, the, the most obvious or the most egregious Imbalances that fighters tend to tend to pick up. I mean, th- a good example of this is in the in the forearm. So, gi Jitsu players, for example, spend a lot of time gripping, so they tend to end up with doing a lot of work with their forearm with flexors, so that the finger flexors, um, but very much less with the with the extensors on the other side of the arm. So the the, the muscles that extend the fingers and that uh, extend the wrist. Now, the problem with that is that a lot of the time that will predispose people towards developing tendon problems, muscle problems, muscle pain, wrist injuries, all of those things. So I'll generally say to the guys who I see with, with some of these issues, um, look, you don't need to spend as much time working the extensors, working the flexors, because that's just impractical. It's not going to happen. Um, but by doing some work, on that, and it doesn't even need to be very much necessarily. By you know, doing some token work to balance things out a bit, you can find that that can make quite a big difference. So, I think there is definitely it's definitely worth doing that. Um, but I think that fighters are never going to take it to the extent where they become completely 100% balanced. And I mean, it's, as human beings, we're not completely symmetrical none of us look the way we do in an, an anatomy textbook um and most of the time that doesn't matter because actually the body is really good at compensating for things you know we're we're built to become specialists you know we're, we're built to adapt to the things that we do regularly um and you see this in people from all different sports you know i think um they dug up some arches so longbow and from um, you know centuries ago. And you can see with the bone, bone structure that they're stronger on one side or they, they have more developed bone structure on their dominant arm than the non-dominant arm um, because their bodies have adapted to, to holding these bows. So as I said, I, mean, I think to some extent that's completely normal and natural, but I think it's worth doing some work to, to, to try and balance things out to a degree.
0: The reason why I ask is also for myself, having done grappling for most of my life. And also other combat sports like now, I do kind of do a total body workout, but I put a lot of emphasis now on doing things for my neck and my back. Like when I get out of bed, actually, before I even get out of bed, one of the first things I do is I do some like neck warming, uh, kind of, uh, neck strengthening exercises. nothing too hard just to kind yeah. of get some blood flow in there. And I felt like man, even before I develop neck injuries, if somebody has said Pay particular attention to your neck and your back when you start grappling. Like those are the like kind of linchpin areas that you might see a lot of aches and pains. Yeah, uh, I think that would have saved me a lot of later on injuries.
2: I think necks in particular get massively underemphasized when we with combat sports in general and contact sports really across the board. You know, this applies equally with things like rugby as well. The neck gets a lot of um, a lot of use, and there's a lot of force going through the neck in certain positions. You know, in I mean, for example, in wrestling, in mixed martial arts, in rugby, um, you're using the neck as a shock absorber. And uh, when I say that, I'll say that to to other physiotherapists, for example, and people usually sit there and look horrified at me when I when I say that. Um, (laughs) And I kind of go, well, you can either prepare the neck for that, or you don't. And if you think preparing for that is scary, then try not preparing for it because most of the neck injuries I see, and I mean, I see a lot of fighters with neck injuries. I've probably seen more fighters with neck injuries than just about any other sports injury professional because people come to me because of my background. Um, and in many, many, many cases, it's because things could have been improved, made less likely that they were going to get those injuries by doing some strength training, by doing some appropriate neck strength work. And I think this is another problem because when you talk to people about what neck strength work they're doing, a lot of the time, even quite high level guys, they won't have a good answer. And they'll say, well, I do some neck bridging. Okay, so which muscles is that working then? Um, And again, a lot of the time they won't know or they won't have a a good idea and they won't have a good idea of what it's not working as well. Um, And what's being being missed. So this is something that I've had a a bee in my bonnet about for a while now. And I I keep banging on about um, because I think we should train the neck the same way that we train everything else. You know, somebody's um, when you go to the gym, you go to see your strength conditioning coach. You'll um, you look at what they're doing for the legs. Well, you'll do squats. You'll do deadlifts. You might do some single leg work. You might um, do some lunges, split squats, but there'll be a whole program. And the same for the upper body. And then you look at next and then I'll, I'll say to people, well, do you see where there's a problem here? And I'll get some of these fighters in clinic and I'll get them doing a couple of really s- simple exercises. And you'll see that they're actually struggling to do these some of the time. And you want to go, well, if you're struggling there with the weight of your head, how do you think that's going to go down when you collide with somebody who's a light heavyweight? And they, that's when they, they'll they totally get the, okay, okay, well, we need to do something about this.
1: So speaking of neck injuries and training for it, with Vanderlei recently admitting that he suffers from CTE symptoms, is there anything you can do in training to lessen the amount of brain damage you take?
2: Yeah, so, so this is all... Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest, um, like a lot of former fighters, um, I find this all terrifying. Um, so there's there's a lot of stuff and you kind of go um, looking at the research. None of it looks good. So in terms of preventing concussions, obviously, the first thing to say and the first thing to emphasise is uh, nothing works as well as not getting punched in the head does. <laughs> um so, you know, the, the first first thing is you've got to consider whether, you know, this is, I mean, you've got to make an informed decision as to whether that's a risk you want to take. Um, and I'm not really in a position to to say very much about that one way or the other. Um, but certainly I wouldn't want to give anyone the idea that anything else they might be doing is going to sort of mitigate that to the same extent that just not doing it would. Um However, there does appear to be some evidence that links neck strength or lack of neck strength with more susceptibility to concussions. So there's there's a theory that if you have a stronger neck, um, you're maybe a bit less likely to be concussed from a similar sized impact, um, and that makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, it's it's a plausible hypothesis and uh, i mean the difficulty with the research is that a lot of this is correlation you know and if you correlate well who's got the strongest necks and who who gets the least concussions there are reasons right where wh- why people with stronger necks might be less likely to get concussions that have nothing to do with the mechanics of the situation you know if the guys with the strongest necks are your biggest most terrifying um, guys on the rugby pitch then I mean, they, they may be less likely to get concussed in ways that have nothing to do with their neck. Um, but as I say, it does appear to make a certain amount of sense. And given that I think the neck is worth training for other reasons as well, um, just, you know, to, to for the avoidance of neck injuries um, and also for performance reasons. You know, let's not forget that because having a stronger neck enables you to, um, well, not to worry about it so much. In certain positions, um, which means you can be stronger in those positions, um, and also to be able to uh, use it better for um, there are positions where controlling that head position is is really important for for the technical outcome as well. So I think there are, there are good reasons for for strengthening the neck anyway, and I think. It's, it's at least plausible to think that it may have an effect on, on concussion risk as well. Um, I mean, the difficulty with that, of course, is that th- there's no way to do the, the experiments that you would really need in order to prove it solidly. We can't um randomly divide people into two groups and um give one of them a neck strength program and then the other one not, and then we subject them all to the same kind, same impact and we see who gets concussion. Yeah, there's I think there's there's ethical problems with that. But yeah, no, I think it's it's one of those things where I mean, for me, it makes enough sense to say, well, look, um if you're going to do these things, it's worth at least thinking about doing some neck strength training. I actually did a little bit of work with Dillian White um, before his last fight. Um, Is I know his strength and conditioning coach up at Loughborough He's an old friend of mine, and we got talking about next strength work. So he invited me up to do a session with him, and I we had him doing some of the some of the drills that I developed, and and um, I got to go back a, a couple of months later and see how they put this all into to training and how he developed from this, and um, it was working really well for them. So, I mean, again, whether that had an effect or not, it's really, really hard to say because you can't, it's hard to separate that out from everything else you did in that fight camp. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that's worth considering, at least.
0: So switching gears a bit, I know you have a PhD in computer science.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So... You're a doctor, a professor of computer science. So did you have a specific emphasis? Like what part of computer science uh, is
2: your specialty? So actually, I mean, it, it says computer science on my certificate, but it was actually maths. Um, so it was it was, it was was maths that was paid for by the computer science department.
0: <laughs> so what does that mean?
2: We had this little group of sort of expat mathematicians that were hanging out in the computer science department. Um, but um, I mean, my... My PhD thesis was in an area called point free topology, sometimes known as pointless topology, (laughs) which um, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. Um, But it's related to certain kinds of logics that were useful in uh, formal methods. There are applications to computer science, um, but those are several steps down the line from from what I was doing. I was doing very much pen and paper stuff. So people, people always ask me whether I can fix their computer. And and I go, look, I I use email (laughs) and that's about it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much in terms of the work I was doing there, it it was very much pen and paper stuff.
0: Oh, I thought it was going to be like math meets uh, computer science equaling, like creating algorithms to brainwash us or something.
2: No, no, I I, I never, I never quite got into that side of things. Um, I sometimes think that it it would have been really interesting. I mean, that's, that could be what i might have done in an alternative universe where i hadn't discovered mixed martial arts um, that could have been me so
0: you would have been a super villain
2: it could be it could be that mixed martial arts actually saved us from skynet so <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: thankfully there was mixed martial arts and yeah uh, yeah yeah punching people seemed to seem to relieve something in you more than uh, <laughs> creating evil robots
2: in, in all seriousness, I do sometimes wonder how how things would have gone down if I hadn't ended up in mixed martial arts. But uh, but yeah, there's I mean there's all sorts of things that I I could have ended up doing from there. But uh,
0: you would have been some bore at Davos, or yeah, something yeah, telling yeah. everybody there's win-win situations for everything.
2: Yeah, no, I I could have ended up being an investment banker. And, <laughs> I mean, I'd be retired on the, on a yacht by now, but uh, my abs probably wouldn't be so good. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> So now that you're able to reflect on your MMA career, what would you say was your toughest opponent and or your toughest fight, or are they one in the same?
2: That's interesting. So, I mean, I had lots of tough fights for different reasons. Um, I mean, again, I sort of come from the era where if an opportunity came along, you you jumped at it. You know, it's um, certainly for a large part of my career. You know, we we didn't get get many chances to pick and choose. so, I mean, I, I fought out of my weight class a lot um, and, you know, in in situations that were definitely less than ideal, you know, less than ideal preparation. Um, and, but, uh, but again, I think that kind of um, definitely made it an interesting learning experience. Um, I mean, I think my first UFC fight was tough for all kinds of reasons. Um, the preparation for that. Interestingly, that was that was one of the fights where the pressure really started to get to me. I think it it was it was sort of that s- step up, and you know all the media attention, everything like that. Um, and I'd been going along and training, and I mean I was I was going up from f- from flyweight to bantamweight um, at the time because I mean that, this was back when the UFC only had a women's bantamweight division, so it's question of, well do you want to fight in the UFC? you're a bantamweight um so so i knew i was going to be going up a weight class and um i think it was um probably about six weeks out from the fight and i i started waking up at like four o'clock in the morning with my heart racing and you know waking up in a sweat and yeah, you know, that's when you know uh, okay <laughs> this is starting to get to me and then it kind of went downhill from there you know i had a um, I had quite a lot of health problems around there. Um, I had, uh, a couple of, um, things came back on, on, on my medicals, on the MRI scan, um, that didn't look great. And it, I mean, it turned out that it was nothing to worry about, but again, that gave me a bit of a scare. Um, like I said, there was, there are a lot of things. So I, I was, um, I was a mess by the time I got to, to Winnipeg. Um, and I think all in all, that was, I still think that that was one of my career best performances. Um, it didn't, it didn't go the way I wanted, you know, I, I didn't get a nod from the judges, but I think just looking at the performance, I was happy with that. Um, and I think I was, I was quite pleased with how I'd handled that. So, I mean, that was, that was probably again, in retrospect, one of my, one of my favorite fights, um, again, it would have been nice, nice to get the nod, but I think with a bit of distance as well so looking back at it you know from a few years out i think the results matter less to me than how i felt about it than how i felt i did i think at the time results were more important um i think when you're caught up in the heat of the moment that's that's what you're focused on i think that's how things need to be really if you in order to, to do yourself justice but i think again definitely looking back i see things a little bit differently
0: this goes back to what we were talking about with math, right? Yes. Like the answer isn't always as important as the process of how you did the work.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: And maybe it takes some hindsight to realize that sometimes.
2: Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's absolutely the case. I think you sometimes need to get some distance before you can see it that way. Definitely. I think there was a, there was an, a, a great quote in, I'm just trying to think of the name. It was, the, the book was The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. I think Um, and the quote was something along the lines of I'm not going to get this word for word but eventually you come to realise that the process of learning the lessons you learned through the pursuit of excellence mean more than the immediate trophies and, and the glory and I think that's definitely something that I can I can apply looking back of my MMA career I think um I learned a lot from doing that um again simply because it was so hard and there's there's something about trying to get every last little performance edge you can and uh, especially in a high pressure situation like that where you know it's just you and one other human being in a cage in front of a load of people um and I think the lengths that um you go to in order to you know, in order to, to win those fights. I think that in itself comes with a lot of useful lessons about just life generally. There's a lot of really transferable stuff. Um, And I think that definitely informs how, how I treat people in the clinic. So when I'm working with, um, with patients, with athletes, with, especially with fighters um, and also how I, how I approach other things as well. I think it's, um, it, it's changed my approach to a lot of stuff
0: so we've been kind of flirting around the topic of politics this whole interview so let's get right into it you said you've been recently getting involved with local politics
2: yeah so um i'm going to be standing as a, a local councillor uh in in may for the for the green party um which is uh now um just for a bit of context um the the local council um is the um the people who basically run the the immediate area so that's that'd be solihull and uh, the green party are actually doing really well um local at a local level um in solihull so at the moment they have 11 out of 30 something Thirty or possibly forty something, forty something total seats. Um, so the Conservatives, are the, they're the they're the biggest group, um, but the Greens are their main opposition, and they've got three target seats for the, these next elections. So in fact, it's my partner who um, he he volunteered to stand as a candidate, but uh, he'd been going to some meetings and things like that, and he came back one time and he said, "They need another candidate. You don't fancy doing it, do you?" and um going back to the thing we talked about earlier you know i I have this way of saying yes to things and then thinking about them afterwards so i said yes to it and thought about it afterwards um (laughs) and um i mean it was basically what they were saying is we've got we think this is a winnable seat we think we've got a really good opportunity here um but we need a candidate to put in there um all right <laughs> um so so yeah so that's my my next uh, my next big project is, uh, is getting elected
0: but before this were you really interested in politics
2: i've i've been interested in politics for a long time um i've i've actually been a member of the the local green party for um for a few years now i mean i i it's a long story i mean uk politics is well, it's a mess at the moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I used to support a different p- political party, and then things happened, and I didn't anymore. Anyway, um, so I ended up um supporting the Greens. Yeah, so I've been a member for a while. I've been to you know a a, a few meetings and events, nothing too serious. Um, and then, like I said, this this came up. So it was a question of well, I've been talking about getting involved, and I've, I mean, I, I do really believe that actually the best way to change things is to get out there and get involved, you know, at whatever level you can. I think it's very easy to sit there and to complain about what the politicians are doing, um, whereas I think it's much harder but more useful to to get stuck in and and try and change something, and and that's when you discover how hard it really is. And um, you know a, a, a lot of the time you know you see people complaining about how things are it's like oh why can't they just do it like this um and then when you're actually out there trying you know and, and you're the one getting those complaints and going well why haven't you sorted this out yet and you know it's not that easy um it, it ain't as straightforward as that uh, and uh i think when you when you see that firsthand it, it's again it's an eye-opener um but uh it's a very steep learning curve for me at the moment. Yeah, you know, I've, I've got and there's a there's a few others on the team at the moment. There's a few other local councillors who, um, yeah, you know, show me the ropes. You know, we've been going around knocking on a few doors and talking to some of the residents, and you know, getting out there. Um, and again, that's that's getting out of my comfort zone. Is you know, going and knocking on people's doors and having political conversations is is definitely um, yeah, you know, that, that's that's where my comfort zone. Um, you know, I'm I'm a card carrying introvert. But uh, as I say, it's 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 one of those things. It's, uh, it's good for me. I'm sure it is.
0: <laughs> so for us here in the US, um, like UK politics and politics here are different for several reasons. One of those being that you guys use a parliamentary system, which actually has an ability for people to be more involved in the local level. We don't have that as much here. We'd have to... just do activism i guess but there isn't as many like uh local political kind of seats available but the other difference is uh the way we think of the left right paradigm where you know i think right wing is pretty similar wherever you go but the left like the u.s has such a kind of a u.s centric view of what the left is you know i come from korea and even talking to my mother-in-law who is visiting me from korea like talking to her about oh in the us the left is a little bit different like the left here means like democrats yeah liberals right whereas in even in korea left means like labor or maybe green right and so i think that's also the case in the uk
2: yeah no i think I I i think that's yeah i think that's i think that's definitely that's definitely fair um i think Certainly until recently, I would say that UK politics had been creeping rightwards. Um, Now it's very polarized at the moment. Um, I mean, you've got some, um, I mean, the Labour Party has, I mean, frankly, the Labour Party is a bit of a mess at the moment as well. The problem is Brexit is ruining everything. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask about. But (laughs) But before we go into that, I think a lot of our US listeners don't even know what, the green party is because it almost has no foothold here so what is the green party what do they stand for
2: so um, i mean the green party is it's a minority party um and i mean it's founded on the idea that of um concern for the environment um being one of one of the major fundamentals um and also um i mean it has some some quite left-wing ideas um in the sense that it's it's very much in favor of I mean, for example, things like universal basic income is something which is is a green policy. Um, it's dealing with with poverty, with local public services, with, I mean, a lot of the, again, a, a lot of the um, the left-wing uh, agenda around here. Um, um, I mean, the problem we've got at the moment in this country, and I think it's similar to, in, in some ways it is similar to, to the US, is that it's very much a two-party dominant system because because of the electoral system because um, it's it's a first past the post system. So basically, you um, you vote for your local representative, um, and whoever gets the most votes wins. And because there's no, no you don't get a first and second preference at the moment, certainly at a national level, um, there's very little opportunity for the um for the less major parties to, to break through into the national consciousness if you like because i think people look at it and they go well i, I want to vote for somebody who can win and i don't want them to win so i have to vote for the the, the the guy who's going to win um so i think because of that the smaller parties do struggle to some extent on a national level so that's when we're looking at sort of parliamentary elections um my my view, I suppose the the question people sometimes ask is why why the Green Party rather than Labour, um, and I think me um, the to some extent it's a policy driven thing. So I, I I I think their policies are closer to my personal views. I also think that at the moment there are some major problems with the the UK Labour Party, um, and I think the it's basically. The way I see it is the UK Labour Party is to it's a, a left wing party and a centrist party crammed together in a dysfunctional relationship. Um, and it's like one of those relationships where the partners sit down, and they kind of go, well, look, we know we this hasn't been working for years, but we've got to stay together because of the children. Because of the electoral system, they end up staying together and. The the result of that is that you see a lot of cross-party bickering. I mean, at the moment, I'm very disillusioned with how the UK Labour Party is handling Brexit and their policy or lack of policy about that. I think that's that's a a big issue for me, um, as I I think um, the Green Party actually have much more coherent policies when it comes to that.
0: With the electoral process that you were mentioning, if people want to look it up, what she's talking about is ranked choice voting, which in the U.S., the only state I know of that is doing it is Maine. And most of us have probably never heard of it. But maybe going forward, we'll hear of it more. But it's what Rosie's talking about.
2: We actually do use it for certain elections. So some of the local mayoral elections, for example. So when we elected the West Midlands mayor, a, uh, a year or two back. Um, that was done on a, a preference vote system. So you had a first and second preference. We actually had a referendum back in 2011 um, about changing our electoral system and um, into uh, what they call single transferable vote, which again, wasn't t- it's not a perfect system, but it was uh, definite progress from, from where we are now. But unfortunately, we dropped the ball on that one. So, uh, that was, uh, I mean, I, I voted for it, but, uh, I was in, a, in in, the minority, um, which I think was really unfortunate because I think we wouldn't be in the mess we are now as a country if that had gone through. Um, yeah. So what the hell is going on with Brexit over there? Oh, your guess is as good as mine at the moment. Um, no, <laughs> nobody knows. Um, <laughs>
0: what do most people want? Do they want to leave or
2: do they want to stay? The problem is the problem is there isn't a majority for any particular course of action. When we had the vote back in 2016, um, the question just said, do you want to leave the EU or do you want to stay in the EU? That was that that was that was what was asked. It didn't say anything about If we leave the EU, what would that mean? You know, would we stay in the single market? Would we stay in the customs union? Um, You know, all these other organisations. What would our future relationship with the EU look like? It didn't address any of that. And nobody had addressed any of that. Um, It just said, do you want to leave? And because of that, it allowed people who are campaigning for leave to paint lots of different incompatible pictures about what leaving would look like. So, you know, some people said, oh, yeah, we'd stay in the single market. Um, so, you know, there's, we will have all these benefits that we had before, you know, we'll be able to do this. You know, it was um, it's this, this fantasy, really, that, you know, we were going to be able to leave the EU and to take back control over nobody seems to be quite sure exactly what they wanted to take back control over but um whatever it was uh, but at the same time you know keep keep all the benefits that we liked and that was very much the picture that was painted um so come the referendum you know there's a, a small majority to leave so it's 52 48 um and he said okay so we, we're gonna leave so then it comes time to to figure out well, what's leaving going to look like, how are we going to do this? And it's an incredibly difficult problem because you've got to disentangle all the ways that um, our law has become um, entangled with with EU law, with all the structures of the EU. You know, with everything that's going on. So how you know how do we disentangle all of that? How do we sort out our future trading relationship? Um, you know, what are we going to do about things like customs checks, for example? Um, and uh, s- supposedly, you know, this has been going on for a few years now. Is you know trying to sort this out, and the deadline for us to leave is actually at the end of March. Um, and um, there's still no deal. Um, so, I mean, our Prime Minister Theresa May she came back with the deal, put it to a parliamentary vote. They voted it down. They said no, this this deal isn't good enough. Um, so the question now is, well, do we? Um, leave the EU without a negotiated deal, um, which would mean, um, I mean, that would mean all kinds of problems with, with trade, with all sorts of things. You know, if there's, if there's no deal, it doesn't cover that transition period. So that's going to cause lots of problems for lots of businesses. Um, and I mean, the anyone who seems to know anything um, is is very worried about the prospect of, of no deal. Um, Because, like I said, it it seems like it would have a catastrophic effect on our economy. Um, But you've you've got people who are going around and saying, yeah, we can do that. That'll be fine. You know, we'll have a clean break with the EU. It won't be a problem. You know, it might have a few tough years, but everything will be all right. Um, And of course, you know, you're putting this to a population who with the best will in the world, with the best will in the world. I'm not an economist. You know, I try to stay up to date. You know, I, I try to I try to read up on these things. You know, I consider myself an educated layperson, but I don't understand all the all the details because that's not my day job. This this isn't something that I've immersed myself in for years. As I say, you know, I've, I've done quite a lot of reading on it. You know, I, th- I, I, I think that um, I've at least tried to do my due, due diligence. And there are certainly lots of people who have done far less than that. I mean the 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 point that I've been trying to make for a while, and lots of other people have been making, is that this isn't a question that you can ask to people who don't have a specialist understanding of EU law and economics and all of the the, the implications for trade, for business. For is, this isn't something that you can just pick up and make a decision on, you know, because. Uh, the the end result is that people are making decisions based purely on completely arbitrary things that you know that they that, that somebody said on you know th- they read something on Facebook they read something on Facebook that said uh, that uh, Turkey is going to be a member of the EU and they don't like that because you know because racism um, or whatever other reason. So rather rather than weighing up all these very complicated factors, I think what a lot of people are doing, and on on both sides of the argument, a lot of people are doing, is they're just picking one thing. And they're 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 picking teams. Team remain and team leave. And then we're gonna have a great big shouting match on the internet about it, and we'll cherry pick facts from what we're hearing that support our point of view.
0: It does seem like a uh, prisoners' dilemma again though, where it's like, you know, in sports Like if you're talking about like uh, unions for MMA athletes, the power of collective bargaining, it's like the UK is like, I'm going to give up collective bargaining. And then it only takes one country to give them a shitty deal. And then it's going to be a race to the bottom where everybody else is like, well, if if you got a shitty deal with that country, I'm going to, I'm going to screw you over too. And then every country (laughs) will fall in line trying to screw over the UK in trade deals, because that's, that's how the prisoner's dilemma could work.
2: Right. I and mean, it, it, it it seems like a, it seems like a terrible idea um, because, uh, as you say, you know, anyone who knows anything about negotiating is, uh, you know, you're negotiating based on the strength of your negotiating position. And w- we're going to have a weaker negotiating position having just left the EU, especially, you know, if we, if we have no deal, you know, we're going to be pretty desperate and every other country knows this that's not going to lead to good deals. You know, um, that's, I can't, I, I can't see how that can possibly go. Well,
0: people watch too many Disney movies where they think there's always a win-win situation.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, well, I mean, this is what are saying. Oh, it must work. You know, it must work because they can't afford not to let it work. It's like, well, Th- that makes no sense at all you know is well if everyone just believes a bit more it, um, you believed in britain it would work it's like that's not how it that's not how international diplomacy works more strength um,
0: the, the answer is more strength <laughs> it's uh, did you try spazzing did you try like yeah attacking rosie harder in <laughs> yeah, the role yeah.
2: oh. i mean this is this is frustrating but the problem is now you have i mean if out of the three outcomes the the negotiated deal that people don't seem to like there's um a no deal exit and there's remaining in the eu and none of those three things has a majority in favor of it
0: what is the green party's stance
2: um the green party stance is that we should put this back to people for a vote because at the time of the original referendum we had no idea what either of these decisions were going to look like so, I mean, it's just leave or remain. Now that we have a better idea of what a negotiated deal would look like or, you know, what the options actually are, the the sensible thing is to go back to the people and say, well, look, is this actually what you want? Which to me makes perfect sense. Um, so, I mean, that's that's how you do. I mean, if you're making decisions in a large company you know you have a meeting to decide which direction you're going to go in and then you have a period of fact finding and you know um, and putting some plans together and then you bring that plan back to people and you say is is this does this plan fulfill our objectives you know is it does this uh, meet what what we agreed
0: on and legally you guys can do that right through
2: a referendum yes yeah so they, they so we could do that we could do that there's been um, there's been a lot of fuss about doing that and that it's it's being portrayed by people who want, well, who have a vested interest in leaving as, oh, this is just people asking for another referendum because they didn't get what they wanted the first time. Which, again, like I say, I, I, the way I see it is the question is different. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're asking people about whether they want to pursue a definite plan, not should we go about trying to find out, you know, should we set about trying to find out what this looks like, which was... You know what what it said the first time. But again, I think the problem is people don't understand the people don't understand the detail. And the devil really is in the detail when it comes to things like this. You know, you have people saying things like, oh, I think we should leave the EU because I don't like the EU. I don't like the way they make decisions. I don't like they're not a perfect organisation. No organisation is. Um, I mean, I think, you know, for me, the question is, well, are we better off staying part of it or not? Again, people have a way of substituting a difficult question for an easier question that they know the answer to and i think instead of asking would we be better off staying as part of the eu a lot of people are answering a question like do you like the eu which is an entirely different question
0: it's a straw man
2: yeah it's i mean it's it's just a mess it's just a mess <laughs> it's like saying you're going to quit your job so we say, okay well all right so what are you going to do after you quit the job you know how are you you going to pay bills what are you what are you going to do go i don't know i just i don't like working in an office okay but but what's your plan i don't know but i mean lots of people make it work so why shouldn't i yeah but 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 what's the plan um and this is the thing that then there there hasn't been a plan you know there's no nobody seems to have a plan um that's one of the biggest
0: blind spots i see like I didn't major in this, but I'm kind of an economics wonk. I love reading about this, but I think I got into it through gambling. Mm. So so much of it is about biases. But one of the biggest ones that people have is uh, a substitution risk. Yeah. Meaning once I stop doing this, uh, you only see all these things that will disappear. Okay. The risks associated with that are gone. Mm. That's it. But it's not it because- when you get rid of something, you always substitute something else into it. it. Yes, it will always happen, and you have no idea what will happen with that. One of the biggest problems we've had with that bias is with the environment. Yes, we stop doing one thing, and we're like, okay, we we'll replace it with another thing. Yeah like ethanol or like, uh, you know, different types of like cooking oils and find out like we're destroying Malaysia, you know? Yeah. Uh, or like recycling, we find out, oh, China's not taking our stuff and other countries are just burning our recyclables now, you know? Yes. And if you guys didn't know, sorry to to bust your bubble about it. But uh, yeah, it seems like the same thing with Brexit. It's like, oh, here's all the things that will go away that you didn't like. But what are the risks that you get with the substitution? Like, yeah, you know all the things you don't like about your job you currently have, but once you quit it, what are all the other risks you don't see?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's a nail on the head. I think that's, that's exactly it. And, I mean, again, the, the problem is public debate is just, it, it's been absolutely stifled. You know, it's anything, any, any discussion about, you know, a, a downside to, to Brexit, I think it's being labelled by people who are promoting this as, oh, it's just project fear. You know, it's, you're just scaremongering. I was like, well, it's not scaremongering if it's a, if it's an, if it's a risk, you know, it's a, it's like, you know, telling somebody don't jump off that cliff. You know, things are going to go badly when you hit the bottom. Um, and somebody else coming along going, oh, they're just scaremongering. You'll be fine. Um, <laughs> it's like, well, really?
0: It's like, uh, the air is dirty. I'll hold my breath. Wait, but if you keep holding your breath, you die.
2: Yes, <laughs> I mean, it just is what it is. But I think again, it, it was it was a ludicrous question to try and get. Again, this is another thing that gets misreported, and um, that then people go, "Oh, are you saying that people who voted Leave are stupid?" And it's like, "Well, I, no, I wasn't saying that." Um, but uh, what, what I'm what I'm saying is that unless you've studied it, unless you're uh, that's your job. You're not going to have looked into it to the degree that somebody, somebody whose job it is to, to understand these things will have done.
0: It also sounds like you're saying the way it was worded also was like a different question than what you guys are living through now.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, it's I think because there were no specifics. So it was it was totally vague. It was, do you want to leave the EU? It was like, you know, do you want to quit your job? Well, maybe.
0: Um <laughs> and just because I want to quit my job doesn't mean I should or I will
2: yes, yeah, yeah,
0: so it's all up in the air
2: it's like that that um is it the old chinese proverb- or the old Chinese curse may you live in interesting times
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so in closing, then, so where can people find you
2: So I'm on all the usual social media channels, I'm on Facebook and I probably engage with Facebook more than anything else. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, My alter ego is Combat Sports Clinic, um, which you can find at combatsportsclinic.net, and that's where I put a lot of my uh, online resources for uh, injured fighters, injured combat sports athletes. Uh, we've, We've got some videos and things coming out about neck strength and injury prevention, and we've got we've got one coming up on lower back issues. So there's a whole bunch of stuff there. If I can, if I can just get my little plug in.
0: <laughs> so I'll put all these links on the show notes for everybody to find you. So thank you, Rosie.
2: Brilliant. Well, it's been, it's been great to chat to you and, uh, yeah, I, there's lots of, lots of interesting topics there.
1: Thank you, Rosie.
2: Thanks. You too.